This is the Thursday Night Podcast, your source for news, analysis, and all things Georgia State sports. Because every day is Thursday. Hello and welcome to episode 139 of the Thursday Night Podcast. My name is Jordan and I'm joined today by Brady and David. The newsmaking machine is working overtime this week as Sunbelt Football Media Days and schedule news in the basketball world have given us much to talk about. Plus, we'll have an update on the baseball draft now that the signing period has commenced. But first, let's start with the hot topic of the day, football and media day part one. On Monday, before the media festivities kicked off in full, the Sunbelt released the preseason coaches poll and the preseason all-conference selections, along with official word that Commissioner Keith Gill has signed a four-year extension through 2030. In the coaches poll, East Division, App State takes first place with 10 first-place votes, Coastal in second with two first-place votes, Georgia State in third with one first-place vote. The order followed Marshall, Georgia Southern, James Madison, and Old Dominion. In the West, Louisiana picked first with 12 of the 14 first place votes south alabama grabbed the other two votes for top spot and were second in the poll while state rival troy slid into third in their first year in the division after that in order came texas state southern miss arkansas state and ulm so gentlemen thoughts on this coaches poll i mean the first thing you'd say is again in a kind of a mounting theme of this offseason is you're seeing a fair amount of respect gone georgia state's way that third place in this division is definitely nothing to sneeze at uh, I'd mention the first place vote. I feel I don't have any authority on this, but I feel pretty decently that I might be Coach Elliott voting first there. And I actually think there's a theme where everyone in the East uh, who got a first place vote, I'd be surprised if the coach of that team wasn't the person who voted for them in first place. App had 10. Stands a reason Sean Clark probably voted for App State to win the East Division. Jamie Chadwell, probably one of the two who picked Coastal. Coach Elliott, probably the one who picked Georgia State first, and I definitely would put the highest likelihood that Clay Helton was the one who gave Georgia Southern the first place vote, because I'm not sure who else would have done that after the year they're coming off of. Uh, but I honestly, I like it in just a general like backing your guys thing. I, I'm all for it. I'm not bringing this up to criticize any of these coaches for being homers for their own guys. Uh, but aside from that, it was interesting to me how the breakdown went where if you look at the points, App State was well in top with 94 points tallied, then Coastal in second with 77, then Georgia State at 68 points, and Marshall at 62, and then there was a big gap. Georgia Southern had 35 points, and that was maybe a little bit surprised that they were in fifth place. James Madison, 31 points, and then ODU at seventh place and last with 25 points. I, would, I was a little bit surprised there was that big of a gap. I thought maybe you'd have a team like ODU kind of bridging in closer to the other teams. And I don't know that anyone knew where James Madison was going to go. And so I guess that makes sense there in six with not that many points. Cause I don't, people are having a real hard time just saying they're going to come up and compete in this Sunbelt East. But my one note on the East was I was just a little bit surprised that there was such a gap where there was. Yeah, it's definitely a surprise, but I do like what you said about the respect, you know, shown Georgia State's way. You know, I checked back in last year's and you had Coastal and App State at one with 44 points. Then Georgia State uh, in third place with 24. So there's definitely 
a bit of a gap and you know i don't know how we just randomly added a whole bunch of more points and stuff like that because we only added what four coaches but anyways um you could definitely tell that georgia state as we see and as we're heading into this season are much closer to the top dogs of the sun belt than they probably have ever been um I guess the one thing that I notice with this list is in the West division. Um, I feel like the West is a lot. It's going to be a lot closer than this, you know, gives credence to. And I just I'm obviously, you know, Louisiana is going to be one of those until they get knocked off the mountain. They're just going to be there. And it's kind of the same way with App State over the last five years. They've had a ton of coaches and did know it really hasn't mattered. I think they've lost the Sun Belt, I think, like twice in the last five years, something like that. Um, but sorry, the Sun Belt East is what I mean to say there. But I, I don't know. I, I really feel like South Alabama and Troy are closer to this iteration of Louisiana because Louisiana lost a lot, and I think Troy specifically, Troy has got a lot of guys on the defensive side of the ball that are you know probably going to be you know talked about as the best players, as some of the best players in the conference, and you know we'll. We'll go through some of them when we talk about the actual list of the all-conference, the preseason all-conference selections. But I don't know, man. I feel like if Troy gets any consistent quarterback play, which they didn't get last year, we Troy could very well go to the Sunbelt Championship game. And I feel like them being so far away from this version of Louisiana, it, it, it feels like that feels a little wrong to me. Yeah, I think everyone is just collectively going to be taking the same bet on the West, and they might be wrong about it. Just that Louisiana was 13 and one last year, and every other team in the West had a losing record. And so I think the bet is just like they can get a certain amount of worse and still be the best team. Whereas to get to the point where they're contending for the West title and winning six, seven, eight games in conference play they're going to have to see really big steps from the other teams, whether it's South Alabama or Troy, or whether it's one of the now dark horses, because again, there was a big gap. Uh, When you look at the points tally, Louisiana was comfortably uh, up top with 95 points. And as Jordan said, 12 of the first place votes. Then you had South Alabama with 79 points, Troy at 76, right on the edge of the in-state rivals. And then 41 points for Texas State, 40 for Southern Miss, 37, and 24 for ULM, which I don't know. I I don't know if it's just believing them because they were the one who kind of had the best win of any of the lower Sunbelt teams when ULM beat Liberty and hung with some other good teams. But I feel like got to give a little more respect to ULM out of that other bunch of teams. I definitely don't know that I would have Texas State in my fourth place, although this kind of has to be their year. It feels like a real make-or-break year for Coach Bavidal there. But the gap there exists, and I don't know. I guess I had a different valuation of some of the teams in the West. It'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. But the bottom line is I nor anyone has any idea how the West is going to go. It feels like Louisiana is just a safe pick to repeat again because they're the only team that's kind of shown anything like division winning football over the last since there's been divisions but like you say Troy's definitely got something if they can have a little more offensive consistency and South Alabama was well on their way to bowl eligibility last year under Kane Womack for the first year he was in charge they just closed out the season with an unbelievably tough stretch of games and they couldn't 
get to that six win mark, but it definitely, I'd feel comfortable saying those three teams that were picked one, two, three in the Sun Belt are going to be bowl eligible, which is risky because there's five, maybe six bowls going to be available for the Sun Belt. And I feel like there's going to be more than two teams in the East that are bowl eligible, but I could see a path to where the West is immediately better than it's been just because I do think that there's a couple of those obvious, like South Alabama and Troy feel like obvious step up candidates and that might be enough to get them past. But having said that, we're going to be halfway through the season and like everyone's going to have the same record in the West and it's going to be absolute chaos and I'm absolutely ready for it. Okay. No one's, no one's guess on what happens in the West can be stupid. I would just say that also. Just anyone say anything like it was like, it's Arkansas State's year, sure. Yeah, I'd believe that. Uh, but I, I want to put you on the spot, though, for how good you think or bad you think the West is. Do you think Georgia State will have a better record than the second place team in the West? Yes. Because the last few years, I mean, Georgia State's going to have to win seven or eight games to win the East as they want to. And if they do that, absolutely, they're going to clear that bar. But even these past couple years where it's been good seasons, not the season they're looking for, they've been five and three, they've been six and two. And I think it's very likely that you're looking at a situation where if it's Louisiana, they're something like six and two or seven and one in conference play. And the next best team is four and four, just because it's possible for sure that the West just cannibalizes itself and they lose a lot of games in between each other. And so I would right now, I would say yes to that. I'd say Georgia state bottoms out in something like five and three in conference. And then in that world, I could absolutely see second place team in the West being four and four, but you know, we didn't, we didn't really talk about how the East could also very easily cannibalize itself and be that same situation where for the first time, you might have a situation where six and two wins you the East, where you had to go undefeated or seven and one in every other year that there have been divisions because it's been that competitive at the top. I feel like it's possible that you see that situation where everyone loses a game and you're into November and it's going to be like this t- battle between these one loss teams and maybe two loss teams and kind of a different circumstance of where we've been, where there's usually been someone who's been running the table. Yeah, it's going to be really contentious. Um, and I, I don't know. I'm getting like, I don't know about you, but I'm getting college football chills. Like it's, it's really about to be August. Like these games are happening soon. Yeah. I'm just having sudden onset college football music playing in my head at times during the day. It just feels like the time to start cranking up the highlights of past seasons, get going. And then you know, Jordan can tease up what we're doing with the uh, the all-conference list, but also interesting for me with uh, the information we were able to glean from what got released in the uh, first and second teams. Yeah, so let's go ahead and jump right on into that with the all-conference selections. Uh, Coastal made a clean sweep of the Offensive and Defensive Player of the Year awards with quarterback Grayson McCall and defensive lineman Josiah Stewart taking those awards respectively for the shots. For their part, Georgia State had eight all-conference honorees on the list. Media Day reps center Malik Sumter and linebacker Blake Carroll were joined on the all-Sunbelt first team by safety Antavius Lane, while there were five Panthers on the second team. Running back Tucker Gregg, offensive lineman Travis, 
Travis Glover and Pat Bartlett. Tight end Aubrey Payne and defensive lineman Thomas Gore. So a really, really strong showing by the Panthers here on the all-conference list. Gentlemen, what are your thoughts? I mean, my first thought is just a general one, especially now that there's 14 teams. The people demand three teams for preseason. Because I think the first thing we could say about anything from a Georgia State perspective, and I'm sure every team in the Sun Belt has the same thought when they're looking at this list is, where's you know Jamil Muhammad for Georgia State or Jamias Williams for Georgia State? And the answer is, if there was a third team, they'd probably be on that. And it's just a matter of there's a lot of talent in this league, and that's what kind of bears out. And there's some quote-unquote snubs, but it's also because there's some really, really good players in the Sun Belt. And so when you think about it like that, the fact that Georgia State is tied with App State for the most honorees with eight, Again, it just shows you where the level of respect is and that a lot of people recognize that it's a really good team with some talented players. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Uh, I feel like they did not capture Georgia State's, like, they did not capture Georgia State's best pass rusher. And that's kind of a weird thing to say because obviously there is talent here you know thomas gore made the list i remember last year you were kind of ahead of the crowd in your thomas gore affection um but you know incredible defensive lineman absolutely you know i i don't want to say this to take anything away from him and yet if somebody were to come back from the future and say david jamil muhammad led georgia state in sacks and had an, an all american type season this year you know there were people at other schools who were randomly just looking up this man's stats because he was just obliterating quarterbacks. I'd be like, well, yeah, like I, I watched this guy last year. I watched him in the bowl game. Of course he did that. Like that's, that's who he is. So you're right. Like there definitely does need to be another list because not only is this Georgia state team better than I think these eight selections signify, I think the rest of the Sun Belt is better and more deserving of some kind of separation between the two lists. And, you know, obviously, that's not going to come from me. It's going to come from the Sunbelt higher ups, you know, and I, I think. I think adding and respecting the other teams. In a way would also not make the player of the year and the defensive player of the year come from the same team. And I know you're probably thinking, OK, how are those related? It doesn't really make sense, but. Can you like I I guess I will I will pose this as a question. Can you really sit there and say that you think that the best two players will come from the same team? There's 14 teams now. Like that's that seems statistically unlikely to me. And I like I think Coastal will be plenty good. I like I I don't have any problems with either of the selections, but like really they're both gonna be from the same team? I don't know. That that seems highly unlikely to me. I, in fairness, it's one of those things where there's so many good players and you kind of have to go off with McCall, what he's been like, I have, he's definitely head and shoulders, the best offensive talent in the league, definitely the best quarterback and it's a quarterback's award. So you definitely go with that. And as a freshman last year, Josiah Stewart had 12 and a half sacks. So I can't really fault either. And yet I agree with you just on a statistical basis that when the season turns to the end, I will be surprised if this is how it pans out but you know again you look at that the fact that they had both the offensive and defensive player of the year feels like an indication of how they were able to get second in the uh some belt um coaches poll feels like a lot of you know that speaks for itself and you know 
hard to fault them bidding put second when you can see that there's a lot of respect for the guys that they have. And, you know, I wanted to mention maybe still in your thunder here, but Troy actually had the most first team selections with five. And so following what you were saying about Troy being sneaky and having that talent, they had the most top tier talent, if you want to put it that way, with five people selected the first team. And so, yeah, it, like you say, I I feel like we've kind of been waiting for that Troy team to come back after Neil Brown left. In the last couple of years, the defense has been good and the offense has just not been good enough. Or in 2019, the offense was pretty good, but the defense wasn't up to stuff. And they're definitely a team that and we've said this at least once on this pod that absolute winners out of this shakeup because going to the West gives them that new place where there's some teams still trying to find themselves and with a new coach probably a lot of positive energy going on there and kind of bears out in the fact that they got five honorees feels like they're in a good place heading into this season. And it's, you know, it's, it's the same, it's the same guys that, you know, it's kind of always been Marshall's there, you know, he's there. He's probably the best linebacker in the Sun Belt. Like I, I don't know what anybody else needs to see at this point. Um, I'm a li- I'm genuinely a little shocked that he wasn't picked as the defensive player of the year, but but I understand it. You know, like you said, Stewart had a really good season last year, um, but you know, Carlton Marshall is here, there, and everywhere, so I'm not really surprised. You know, Chola's there, defensive lineman. You've also got Javon Solomon. I mean, like that Troy defense is good. Like I I I know that they have not been like you said what we expected them to be, but if this is the year they can finally get some stable quarterback play i mean that troy team could very well win the west you know obviously it's going to come down to you know playing well in the games that it matters and you know it's just kind of the same thing we say for georgia state every year as well but it would not shock me if that troy team was a very very good first place west team or you know even a second place west team and like easily clears a bowl eligibility spot and that would be very fortuitous timing for Georgia State and the rest of the East that this was the year they decided to put it together when they moved to another side. When I mean, the East has already got enough problems with Troy also being like if Troy was also, you know, if the West added another, I guess, one or two teams, however, it would make it work and Troy had stayed in the East. I mean, it would just be a whole nother level of just what is going to happen. Uh, but as it stands, it's still certainly very interesting. And uh, there was one thing that got kind of, it's not announced, but the Sun Belt were kind of wink, wink, it's going to happen, where they're working on a sixth bull tie. There are currently five. And that was what came out this week is that Keith Gill was saying, it's probably going to happen. They haven't announced what it's going to be. And I think, I'm sure there's a wealth of opinion on where Sunbelt teams want there to be another bowl location. But I also, I think we missed this. This got released from what I can see on the Sunbelt site back in May that the dates changed for the bowl games. And I wanted to bring this up now because uh, we had missed it originally, but it was worth noting because aside from all of the bowls are on different days, whereas I think this year, three or four of the Sunbelt ties were all on that first day of bowl action. I think it's a huge plus for the Sunbelt to kind of be able to have Sunbelt fans diversify their watching and it's not having to either sit in front of their TV for nine hours or pick and choose between their team and another Sunbelt team. I think it's good on that merits. But the most important thing to me from this was that the Camellia Bowl, which was on Christmas this past year, is on the 27th. Christmas football is done. And for everyone's personal interest, I think that's a huge win, 
especially because for Georgia State, if you remove the Christmas from it, and we said this at the time, Montgomery is a great bowl location for fans to go travel to. It's a fun little stadium, old stadium. And the only negative was the Christmas part of it. And so I wanted to circle back and mention that while we were talking about football because huge win. Maybe the biggest win of a week where everyone's excited about the season. I mean, who knows who's even going to be bowl eligible and getting to that point with the way the East is. But something you can circle is like, all right, this is a nice, nice news item. I don't know who it is I need to thank, but this is the best Christmas present. Either Keith Gill or the people at ESPN or the Camellia people or whoever have given me. So thank you for my early Christmas present. It's Christmas in July. All right, so let's go ahead and move on to basketball. And guess what? We have more schedule news. The Panthers announced a home-and-home with mid-major stalwart Belmont, now of the Missouri Valley Conference. Georgia State will host the first game in the series on November 27th of this year before heading up to Nashville for the return leg next season. And in some more schedule housekeeping, the Panthers' road trip to Auburn has moved from December 2nd to December 14th, and the date of their home game with Rhode Island has been reported as December 18th. All of the schedule news comes courtesy of Rocco Miller. So a uh, little bit of shakeup on the basketball side, a little bit of addition and a little bit of other stuff to discuss. What are our thoughts? Belmont might be the home run of the home runs of what we've been talking about with this conference. I love this game. Nash- Nashville's like four hours away, so it's a nice drivable. Um, certainly when the return trip happens, I will be looking at making moves to go attend that game because I've always been a respecter of this Belmont program. Obviously, the legend that is Rick Bird has retired, uh, but they have kept their prowess going. They've been a top like 100, 120 team in basketball the last five, six years. Uh, haven't lost to beat under the new coach, and now they're joining what probably is the new far and away best mid-major basketball conference in the Missouri Valley. I mean, it's it's almost not a mid-major in basketball with how they've been building, and they've got really good stuff and that's with losing a team like Loyola who went to the A10 and they still managed to add a lot of good teams and snagged Belmont that was a big thing for them and so that was the big one this week because I mean the time changes we knew they were playing Auburn and Rhode Island we knew they were playing Rhode Island it was just a matter of when and those are now going to be back-to-back games as a matter of fact in the middle of December and the schedule is shaping up nicely kind of the same note that I had on last week's pod it's tough and adding a team like Belmont makes it even tougher. And the Georgia State's going to have to earn that winning record in that conference play. But I guess the fact that they're all home games or most of them are home games gives you that home field advantage. And that's helpful. Give, make, might get you over the edge in a, in a close game. But certainly Georgia State is going to show what they're made of from the jump in this out-of-conference schedule in year one of Jonas Hayes. Yeah, I think... These are going to be a much better temperature check for this team because they're at home than they would be if they were on the road. And, you know, what I mean by that is if these were road games, you know, it's the first year of a new head coach. You know, you're kind of trying to establish your system. The team, obviously, you know, Coach Jonas has brought in a lot of guys, transfer guys who we project to be in the starting lineup, but we don't know, you know, who's going to be in the starting lineup. But I think the difference between this team and say the team that um, coach Rob Lanier inherited was kind of the leadership that is on this team versus that team. 
it's probably going to be a young team. You know, you'll have guys who are probably either, you know, mid-level classmen or actual upperclassmen who will be here, but their time in NCAA basketball was not at Georgia State necessarily. You know, it's going to be a very young team. And I think with these games, even the tougher games like Wofford, Belmont, Auburn being at home, you know, it'll allow those guys to really be able to play a basketball game in their comfort environment. You know, like obviously there are teams who are young, who are mid-majors, who can go on the road to any school, any SEC school, any tournament school, and, you know, they do it. They, you know, they're just going to win. They're just going to pull that upset. It's going to be on ESPN. It's going to feature a buzzer beater. It's going to be great. But, you know, I think having these games be in Atlanta is very beneficial for this team just because of that comfort factor. You know, guys will be loose. You know, they're not going to see the bright lights of a, you know, big, huge arena that they have never been to before. They're going to see their own lights there. And they're going to have, you know, as we get later and later into this, you know, pretty tough home slate, they're going to have that experience. You know, that Georgia Tech game is back on, you know, on November 12th. That's, that's early. You know, by the time they get to Wofford, by the time they get to Rhode Island, you know, you're talking a month later. You're talking guys who have played a little bit together, you know, and I'm not looking for, you know, end of season tournament level like basketball chemistry or anything like that. But you'll have already gotten the, you know, the monkey off your back and saying, OK, I played a college basketball game. OK, these guys haven't been my teammates long, but they're my teammates now. And I kind of know what this guy does and that guy wants to do. And, you know, it's it, I think it'll be very beneficial for them. And, you know, that'll be a good test and it'll help us and them see kind of where we can kind of slot Georgia State in the Sun Belt. Are there going to be, you know, some growing pains in year one of Coach Hayes? Are there going to be a team that kind of just doesn't miss a beat and instead of having a weird COVID year, they just actually shoot up to the top of the Sun Belt? You know, we don't know, so. Yeah, it's certainly a trial by fire. And, you know, even within, I was looking at the schedule, we played Georgia Tech on November 12th. This, this is the near complete. There's not a lot more room to add to the schedule, but as it is right now, you're hosting Georgia Tech on November 12th. You've got the multi-team event from November 18, 19, 20 with Eastern Kentucky, Texas A&M Commerce, and UNC Asheville. Then you're hosting Belmont on November 27th. You've got a home game against Wofford on December 10th. You go on the road for your only so far road game in out-of-conference play at Auburn on December 14th. And then the last known game is Rhode Island on December 18th. And I feel like there's going to be an exhibition and maybe one home game against, you know, insert non-Division one team right at the start, or maybe a Division one team. If somehow after all of this with the schedule, if the first game that counts is still against a Division one opponent, I think everyone around will just continue to give, like the rounds of applause for the scheduling will never stop with Georgia State fans. Because I feel like the one gripe above all even if they had this schedule, if it was like front loaded with three teams that are non D one, it'd still be the one last thing people would say, yeah, can we get rid of those? So we'll see how that turns out with those games. But as far as what we even do know at this point, it strikes me that even the easiest games of the opponent, as far as the opponent go are all in back to back to back games, replicating tournament stuff and going to have some tired legs to work through. And so even the games where you look at is like, Georgia State should want to go 3-0 and in those games. That's still easier said than done in the sense that you're going to be playing three games in three days, and sure, it's in your home arena, but that's still an ordeal to go through. And so 
really there's nowhere to hide because even the games you look at as hopefully wins, it's going to be in this environment that's going to test you in a different way. And so all around a lot of test, which I think is good, I think to take that next step, whether they succeed this year or not, it's going to be a useful exercise for Georgia State to go through this type of schedule. And, you know, the last thing to mention this schedule, I think there's probably room for maybe a road game to go in after the Rhode Island game before the first conference game on the 29th against James Madison in December. Probably not anywhere else. Maybe there's room for one between the Belmont and the Wofford game. But like if you look at like the Xavier's of the world where Jonas Hayes came from and really top programs, they don't play hardly any road games. So it weirdly mirrors some power conference out of conference schedules in that regard because there's missing like the neutral site games that your Dukes and Gonzaga will play against each other. Like obviously those aren't on the cards yet, but it struck me that just now looking at this schedule for the first time in a little while with some more teams added, there's one road game right now and that might change, but even if it's two, three, like that's not the traditional schedule that Georgia state's played. They've had their home games. They've played maybe even Steven like five and five or six and three home road, but it's never been this much of a split and you're not sacrificing opponent quality. You know, you, as we've just talked about for this entire segment, the teams they are getting to come to the convocation center are a really good college basketball team. So yeah, I mean, the results are going to be a different thing and it's going to be a slog and it's going to be a real test, but just on the scheduling merits, I really can't say enough words about this. I feel like that's the takeaway is just, continually impressed by the way they've been able to schedule this in year one. I mean, that's, that is the magic of playing in that convocation center. You know, I, one cannot wait until it opens just as a, you know, fan, if you will. Um, I think there's a little fan in all of us, but I just, the, the things that this convocation center can do for this program. I mean, and it's just, Coach Hayes is just really coming in at the perfect time for him, for the players, and just, you know, the way that this program can evolve with just this one thing. I mean, it's 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 really big boy hours at this point. Like it's I, I don't even know how to describe it because you're right. Like it's this is not something that like we have seen a Sunbelt schedule look like before. And you know, I know you know, Commissioner Gill and you know other people have been like, oh, you know, we want to stop playing the cupcakes and stuff like that. And yes, obviously if Georgia State and the Sun Belt want to continue to raise their basketball profile, the cupcake scheduling will need to continue to diminish. But you know, this is this is exactly how you put a friggin' non-conference schedule together and prove that you're trying to play real basketball from game one to, you know, game 40. Yeah, and just to put a pin on this, you know, everyone talks about words versus actions. You were kind of talking about there with the scheduling that it's been, I feel like everyone's talking about the scheduling for the last five times, you know, back to when there was another commissioner before Keith Gill's time. And it's not really gotten any better collectively. And now you see with this schedule already in year one, you're seeing a difference. And you saw it already with another thing Jonas Hayes talked about with bringing guys home to Atlanta in his opening press conference as head coach. And bam, 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 three transfers who played their prep ball in Atlanta already back. And so without having played a game yet, the results are still going to have to be measured. And the schedule is not going to make it any easier to get those results. And Georgia State fans are used to winning on the basketball court. But 
without being able to measure any of that stuff yet, if you're just looking at putting words into actions, I just don't think that Jonas Hayes could have gotten off to a better start in that regard in building that excitement because he's doing it now on multiple fronts and long may it continue. All right, so last but certainly not least, we've got some baseball news for you in the form of updates on last week's draft news. Griffin Chaney has signed with the Texas Rangers after they drafted him in the ninth round of the 2022 MLB draft. Additionally, news came out today that Panthers left-handed pitcher Seth Clark was picked up by the Rangers as an undrafted free agent. And Georgia State has lost a commit from this signing class, as it's been reported by MLB.com that Dutchtown outfielder Christian Jackson did sign with the Atlanta Braves after they took him in the 19th round of the draft. So, uh, gentlemen, thoughts? Yeah, first off, really cool that Griffin and Seth are going to end up in the same system. And given that they're both, you know, Griffin was a super senior, Seth was a junior, they're not exactly the same year-wise, and sometimes the development paths can be different in the minor leagues, even between college guys. But it really wouldn't surprise me if, if they aren't on the same team and the kind of on the same exact path going from different classes to different classes, at most they'd be maybe a class apart from where they are. And that promotion could come at some point to where they're on the same team. And so that'd just be a really cool story out of all of this. And obviously best of luck to them as they go on their professional journey, um, having a familiar guy, maybe in the locker room, depending on where they land and which uh, assignment they get out of the gates. But uh, on the other front, I will say that, as soon as I started seeing the quote that I gave last week on the pod about uh, the Braves directing of scouting being like, we expect to sign everyone in this class. And the noise changed from the people who cover this stuff who had started saying, going to be a tricky sign for the Braves to get this guy to, yeah, I think they're going to get it done. So as soon as that news came across, I never saw it any in any one tweet that I could put out on the account, but MLB.com tracks this stuff with their draft tracker and Baseball America tracks it too. And they came out the word either yesterday or before something like that, that Braves have signed all but one of their draft picks, who ironically enough is a Southern Miss pitcher, although that one is probably going to get over the line. But I think we kind of knew this was coming. Long way of saying that, that I think as that mood music changed, it felt like they're going to lose him. But like we talked about last week on the pod, not a bad sign that the guys you're getting commits from end up getting poached by MLB teams, especially in this 20 round format where they want them and they don't want to let them go to college and maybe get in a higher round and get away from them. You know, I think can only take positives away from it and Georgia state will be able to cover up the one loss in their signing class and move on. And it won't be the difference between them being a good team and a great team or a good team and a, so-so team next year and they will move on next man up because next man up's a football thing but it's a baseball thing too because we're using it here yeah it'll be really interesting to see when you have high school signees deciding that it's better to go to georgia state than it is to be drafted by insert x team here in the teens and late teens rounds um which you know I don't know Christian Jackson. I don't know what he's looking to do in the Braves organization. I mean, if there's one thing that the Braves have developed well over the last like 10 years, it's outfielders and pitchers. So if you play either of those, like hats off to you. Um, But bringing it back to Georgia State, it's okay. They lost the commit. It'll happen. I think it is going to be better for us to keep continue to track these draftees and these you know non-drafted free agents because you can tell that the talent is improving at this university when it comes to baseball and there's you know i think i saw 
a lot of guys just who plays baseball in the Sun Belt, both, you know, that were taken by, you know, teams that I like and just teams that I, you know, am following. Like, I think uh, Seth Clark wasn't the only Sun Belt player. I think the Rangers also signed guy from a, Coastal. Yeah, a guy from Coastal as well. There was a, the Cubs had a high pick this year and there was some, Cub prospect types who were looking at the coastal shortstop, I believe Newman Jr. is his last Eric name. Brown. Brown, thank you. Um, you know, like that's that's where we want Georgia State to be. You know, yes, it's nice if they can find a way to win the college football, excuse me, the college baseball world series, but you just want to be in those conversations for hey, I remember that outfielder who hit, you know, 40 home runs. Somebody should draft him in the fifth round. That's where you want Georgia State to be. And, you know, we're hopeful that, you know, there's more and more players who teams are, you know, trying to draft and trying to continue to develop their baseball skills and, you know, maybe make it into the Major League Baseball. Yeah, you want to talk about what you're building towards. I mentioned that the Braves signed a Southern Miss pitcher. I believe they had five go off the board, just pitchers. and. Neither of them were the top two guys that they were relying on. A guy named Tanner Hall, who's going to go very high in the draft next year when he's eligible. And there's another guy they had who transferred to, I believe, UNC. Um, so neither of the really, quote unquote, top two pitchers went. And they still had five guys get drafted in the 20 rounds. You know, we've talked about it a lot when we talked to those guys from Buzzardry about just what the baseball program has been built to there in Hattiesburg. But speaks for itself as to what you're looking to get to in they're able to have five just pitchers get taken in a draft like that. Wait, there were five pitchers taken in the draft and none of them were taken by the Cubs? Come on, what are you talking about? So that is all we've got time for this week. Uh, lots of fun news updates for the Panthers. And of course, there is much, much more to come as we ramp up toward the start of football season. So uh, keep your eyes peeled for some preseason content in that regard. And of course, we'll give you updates on everything else as that, uh, as those events warrant. But again, that's all we got time for this week. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you in the next episode of the Thursday Night Podcast. See ya.